All right, we are going to read chapters 31 through 33 of Stargirl. It is the end of the book. I hope you guys have enjoyed it so far. Uh, Stargirl is written by Jerry Spinelli and published by Scholastic. Chapter 31. As she had predicted, I did not ask her to the Ocotillo Ball. I did not ask anyone. I didn't go. She did. The ball took place on a Saturday night in late May on the tennis courts of the Mica Country Club. When sunset was down to a faintly glowing ember in the west and the moon rose in the east, I went forth on my bicycle. I coasted by the club. Festooned with Cantonese lanterns, the ball in the distance looked like a cruise ship at sea. I could not identify individuals, only stirrings of color. Much of it was powder blue. The day after Wayne Parr said he had chosen powder blue for his dinner jacket, three quarters of the boys ordered the same from Tuxedo Junction. Back and forth, I cruised in the night beyond the lights. Music reached my ears as random peeps. The desert flowers, so abundant in April, were dying now. I had the notion that they were calling to each other. I cruised for hours. The moon rose into the sky like a lost balloon. Somewhere in the dark shapes of the Maricopas, a coyote howled. In the days and weeks and years that followed, everyone agreed. They had never seen anything like it. She arrived in a bicycle sidecar. Just big enough for her to sit in, the sidecar had a single outboard wheel. The inboard side was braced to the bike. Everything but the seat of the bike and the sidecar bench was covered in flowers. A ten-foot blanket of flowers trailed the rear fender like a bridal train. Palm fronds flared from the handlebars. It looked like a float in the rose parade. Dory Dilson pedaled the bicycle. Eyewitnesses later filled in what I could not see. Parents' cameras flashing, floodlights making a second day as the gorgeous couples disembark from limos and borrowed convertibles and promenade to the festive courts. Showers of applause. Suddenly, the flashing stops, the floodlights dim, a hush falls over the crowd. As a particularly long white limo rolls away from the entrance, here comes this three-wheeled bouquet. The driver, Dory Dilson, wears a tailed white tuxedo and a tall silk hat, but it is her passenger who rivets the crowd. Her strapless gown is a bright, rich yellow, as if pressed from buttercups. There must be one of those hooped contraptions underneath, for the skirt billows outward from the waist like an upside-down teacup. Her hair is incredible. Descriptions clash. Some say it is the color of honey. Some say strawberries. It fluffs like a meringue high upon her head. It's a wig. No, it's all hers. Both sides are certain. Earrings dangle. They are little silver somethings. But what? They are partly obscured by falling ringlets. Many answers are offered. The most popular is Monopoly pieces, but this will prove to be wrong. From a rawhide string around her neck dangles a white, inch-long bandana-shaped fossil identifying her as a member in good standing of the loyal order of the stone bone. While others wear orchids, the corsage on her wrist is a small sunflower, or a huge black-eyed Susan, or some sort of daisy. No one is sure except that the colors are yellow and black. Before proceeding, she turns back to the bicycle and bends over a small basket hanging from the handlebars. 
The basket, too, is covered with flowers. She appears to kiss something in it. She then waves to Dory Dilson. Dory salutes, and the bicycle pulls away. People nearby catch a glimpse of tiny cinnamon-colored ears and two peppercorn eyes peering out of the basket. Beautiful. Unusual. Interesting. Different. Regal. These words will come later from the parents lining the walk. For now, there are only stairs as she makes her way from the entrance to the ball. Someone recalls a single camera flashing, but that is all. She is no one's child. She is the girl they have heard about. As she passes by, she makes no attempt to avoid their eyes. On the contrary, she looks directly at them, turning to one side, then the other, looking into their eyes and smiling as if she knows them, as if they had shared grand and special things. Some turn aside, uneasy in a way they cannot account for. Others feel suddenly empty when her eyes leave theirs. So distracting, so complete is she that she is gone before many realize that she had no escort. She was alone, a parade of one. Perched on my bike in the distance, I remember looking up and seeing the torrent of stars we call the Milky Way. I remember wondering if she could see them too, or were they lost in the light of lanterns? The dancing took place on the center tennis court, which had been covered with a portable parquet floor. She did what everyone else did at the ball. She danced. To the music of Guy Greco and the Serenaders, she danced the slow dances and the fast ones. She spread her arms wide and threw back her head and closed her eyes and gave every impression of thoroughly enjoying herself. They did not speak to her, of course, but they could not help looking over the shoulders of their dates. She clapped at the end of each number. She's alone, they kept telling themselves, and surely she's danced in no one's arms. Yet, somehow, that seemed to matter less and less. As the night went on and clarinet and coyote call mingled beyond the lantern light, the magic of their own powder blue jackets and orchids seemed to fade, and it came to them in small sensations that they were more alone than she was. Who was the first to crack? No one knows. Did someone brush against her at the punch table, pluck a petal from her flower? One was missing. Whisper high? This much is certain. A boy named Raymond Studmacher danced with her. To the student body at large, Raymond Studmacher did not have enough substance to trigger the opening of a supermarket door. He belonged to no team or organization. He took part in no school activities. His grades were ordinary. His clothing was ordinary. His face was ordinary. He had no detectable personality. Thin as a minute, he appeared to lack the heft to carry his own name. And in fact, when all eyes turned to him on the dance floor, those few who came with a name for him frowned at his white jacket and whispered, Raymond something. And yet, there he was, Raymond something, walking right up to her. It came out later that his date had suggested it, and speaking to her, and then they were dancing. Couples steered themselves to get a better look. At the end of the number, he joined her in clapping and returned to his date. He told her the silver earrings looked like little trucks. Tension rose. Boys got antsy, girls picked at their corsages, the ice shattered. Several boys broke from their dates. They were heading her way when she walked up to Guy Greco and said something to him. 
Guy Greco turned to the serenaders, the baton flashed, and out came the sounds of that old teen dance standard, the bunny hop. Within seconds, a long line was snaking across the dance floor. Stargirl led the way, and suddenly it was December again, and she had the school in her spell. Almost every couple joined in. Hillary Kimball and Wayne Parr did not. The line curled back and forth across the netless tennis courts. Stargirl began to improvise. She flung her arms to a make-believe crowd like a celebrity on parade. She waggled her fingers at the stars. She churned her fists like an egg beater. Every action echoed down the line behind her. The three hops of the bunny became three struts, then a penguin waddle, then a tippy-toed press. Every new move brought new laughter from the line. When Guy Greco ended the music, howls of protest greeted him. He restruck the downbeat. To delighted squeals, Stargirl led them off the parquet dance floor, onto the other courts, and then through the chain-link fence and off the tennis courts altogether. Red carnations and wrist corsages flashed as the line headed onto the practice putting green of the golf course. The line doodled around the holes, in and out of side pools of lantern light. From the dance floor, it seemed to be more than it was. One hundred couples, two hundred people, four hundred dancing legs seemed to be a single festive flowery creature, a fabulous millipede. And then there was less and less to see as the head vanished and the rest curled through the fringe of the light and followed, like the tail of a powder blue dragon, into the darkness. One, go- one girl in chiffon had a tiff with her date and ran off toward the first tee, calling, Wait for me! She looked like a huge mint green moth. Their voices came in clearly from the golf course. The laughing and yelping made a raucous counterpoint to the metronomic talk, talk, talk of the bunny's never-ending hop. Once in the light of the quarter moon, they appeared in silhouette on a domed, distant green-like figures dancing in someone's dream. And then quite suddenly, they were gone, as if the dreamer had awakened. Nothing to see, nothing to hear. Someone called, hey, after them. But that was all. It was, according to those left behind, like waiting for a diver in water to return to the surface. Hillary Kimball, for one, did not share that feeling. I came here to dance, she declared. She pulled Wayne Parr along to the bandstand and demanded regular music. Guy Greco tilted his head to listen, but the baton did not stop, and neither did the band. In fact, as the minutes went by, the music seemed to become louder. Maybe it was an illusion. Maybe the band felt a connection to the dancers. Maybe the farther the line spun into the night, the louder the band had to play. Maybe the music was a tether or a kite string. Hillary Kimball dragged Wayne Parr out to the middle of the parquet floor. They slow danced, they fast danced, they even tried an old-fashioned jitterbug. Nothing worked. Nothing went with the triple-thumping drumbeat but the bunny hop itself. Hillary's orchid shed petals as she beat her fist on Wayne Parr's chest. Do something, she yelled. She ripped sticks of chewing gum from his pocket. She chewed them furiously. She she split the wad and pressed the gum into her ears. The band played on. Afterward, there were many different guesses as to how long the bunny hoppers were actually gone. Everyone agreed it seemed to be hours. 
Students stood under the last line of lanterns, their fingers curling through the plastic-coated wire of the fence, peering into the vast blackness, straining for a glimpse, a scrap of sound. All they heard was the call of a coyote. A boy dashed wildly into the darkness. He sauntered back, his blue jacket over his shoulder, laughing. A girl with glitter in her hair shivered. Her bare shoulders shook as if she were cold. She began to cry. Hilary Kimball stalked along the fence, clenching and unclenching her fists. She could not seem to stand still. When, they, when the call finally came, they're back! It was from a lone watcher at the far end. A hundred kids, only Hilary Kimball stayed behind, turned and raced down eight tennis courts, pastel skirts flapping like stampeding flamingos. The fence buckled outward as they slammed into it. They strained to see. Light barely trickled over crested earth beyond the fence. This was the desert side. Where? Where? And then you could hear. Whoops and yahoos out there somewhere, clashing with the music. And then, there, a flash of yellow, Stargirl leaping from the shadows. The rest followed out of the darkness, a long, powder blue, many-headed birthing. Hop, hop, hop. They were still smack on the beat. If anything, they seemed more energized than before. They were fresh. Their eyes sparkled in the lantern light. Many of the girls were browning half-dead flowers in their hair. Stargirl led them along the outside of the fence. Those inside got up a line of their own and hopped along. Guy Greco struck the downbeat three final times. Hop, hop, hop and the two lines collided at the gate in a frenzy of hugs and shrieks and kisses. Shortly after, as the serenaders gratefully played Stardust, Hilary Kimball walked up to Stargirl and said, You ruin everything. And she slapped her. The crowd grew instantly still. The two girls stood facing each other for a long minute. Those nearby saw in Hilary's shoulders and eyes a flinching, she was waiting to be struck in reply. And in fact, when Stargirl finally moved, Hillary winced and shut her eyes. But it was lips that touched her, not the palm of a hand. Stargirl kissed her gently on the cheek. She was gone by the time Hillary opened her eyes. Dory Dilson was waiting. Stargirl seemed to float down the promenade in her buttercup gown. She climbed into the sidecar. The flowered bicycle rolled off into the night. And that was the last any of us ever saw of her. Chapter 32. That was 15 years ago. 15 Valentine's Days. I remember that sad summer after the Ocotillo Ball just as clearly as everything else. One day, feeling needy, empty, I walked over to her house. A for sale sign, a a for sale sign pierced the ground out front. I peered through a window. Nothing but bare walls and floors. I went to see Archie. Something in his smile said he had been expecting me. We sat on the back porch. Everything seemed as usual. Archie lighting his pipe, the desert golden in the evening sun, Senor Saguaro losing his pants. Nothing had changed. Everything had changed. Where, I said. A corner of his mouth winked open and a silky rumple of smoke emerged paused as if to be admired, then drifted off past his ear. Midwest, Minnesota. Will I ever see her again? He shrugged. 
Big country, small world. Who knows? She didn't even finish out the school year. No. Just vermoosed. Mm-hmm. It's only been weeks, but it seems like a dream. Was she really here? Who was she? Was she real? He looked at me for a long time, his smile wry, his eyes twinkling. Then he shook his head as if coming out of a trance. He deadpanned. Oh, you're waiting for an answer. What were the questions again? Stop being nutty, Archie. He looked off to the west. The sun was melting butter over the Maricopas. Real? Oh, yes. As real as we get. Don't ever doubt that. That's the good news. He pointed the pipe stem at me. And well-named. Stargirl. Though I think she had simpler things in mind. Star people are rare. You'll be lucky to meet another. Star people? I said. You're losing me here. He chuckled. That's okay. I lose myself. It's just my oddball way of accounting for someone I don't really understand any more than you do. So where do stars come in? He pointed the pipe stem. The perfect question. In the beginning, that's where they come in. They supplied the ingredients that became us. The primordial elements. We are star stuff, yes? He held up the skull of Barney, the Paleocene rodent. Barney, too, hmm? I nodded, along for the ride. And I think every once in a while, someone comes along who is a little more primitive than the rest of us, a little closer to our beginnings, a little more in touch with the stuff we're made of. The words seemed to fit her, though I could not grasp their meaning. He saw the vacant look on my face and laughed. He tossed Barney to me. He stared at me. She liked you, boy. The intensity of his voice and eyes made me blink. Yes, I said. She did it for you, you know. What? Gave up herself for a while there. She loved you that much. What an incredibly lucky kid you were. I couldn't look at him. I know. He shook his head with a wistful sadness. No, you don't. You can't know yet. Maybe someday. I knew he was tempted to say more, probably to tell me how stupid I was, how cowardly that I blew the best chance I would ever have. But his smile returned and his eyes were tender again and nothing harsher than cherry smoke came out of his mouth. I continued to attend Saturday meetings of the Loyal Order of the Stonebone. We did not speak of her again until the following summer, several days before I was leaving for college. Archie had asked me to come over. He took me out back, but this time not to the porch. Instead, he led me to the tool shed. He slid back the bolt and opened the door, and it was not a tool shed after all. This was her office, he said and gestured for me to enter. Here it was, all the stuff of her activity that I had expected to see in her room at home, the office whose location she would not reveal. I saw wheels of ribbon and wrapping paper, stacks of colored construction paper, cardboard boxes of newspaper clippings, watercolors and cans of paint, a yellow stack of phone books. Tacked to one wall was a map of Mecca. Hundreds of pins of a dozen different colors pierced the map. There was no indication what they stood for. A huge homemade calendar covered the opposite wall. It had a square for every date in the year. Penciled into the squares were names. Across the top of the calendar was one word, birthdays. There was one dot of color on the whole thing, a little red heart. It was next to my name. Archie handed me a fat family album sort of book. The homemade title said, The Early Life of Peter Sinkowitz. I flipped through it. 
I saw the picture she had taken that day, Peter squabbling with the little girls over his beloved banana roadster. I'm to wait five years, then give it to his parents, said Archie. He pointed to a filing cabinet in the corner. It had three drawers. I opened one. There were dozens of red hanging folders, each with a name tag sticking up. I saw Borlock. Me. I pulled it out and opened it. There was the birthday notice that appeared in the Micah Times three years before, and a profile of me from the school paper, and pictures, candid snapshots of me in a parking lot, me leaving my house, me at the mall. Apparently, Peter Sinkowitz wasn't the only target for her camera. And a sheet of paper with two columns, likes and doesn't like. Heading the, the list of likes was porcupine neckties. Under that was strawberry banana smoothies. I replaced my folder. I saw other names, Kevin, Dory Dilson, Mr. McShane, Danny Pike, Anna Grisdale, even Hillary Kimball and Wayne Parr. I stepped back. I was stunned. This is unbelievable. Files on people like she was a spy. Archie nodded, smiling. A lovely treason, hmm? I could not speak. He led me out into the dazzling light. Chapter 33. Throughout my college years, I visited Archie whenever I came home, and then I got a job back east, and my visits were less frequent. As Archie grew older, the difference between himself and Senor Saguaro seemed to become less and less. We sat on the back porch. He seemed fascinated by my work. I had become a set designer. Only recently had it occurred to me that I became one on the day Stargirl took me to her enchanted place. On my last visit with him, he met me at the front door. He dangled in, he dangled keys in front of my eyes. You drive. An old tar pail rattled in the bed of his ancient pickup as he pointed me west to the Maricopas. In his lap, he carried a brown paper bag. Along the way, I said, as I always did, So, have you figured her out yet? It was years since she had gone, yet still we needed no name for her. We know who we were talking about. I'm working on it, he said. What's the latest? We were following a familiar script. On this day, he stated, she's better than bones. On my previous visit, he had said, when a star girl cries, she does not shed tears, but light. On other days, in other years, he had called her the rabbit in the hat and the universal solvent and the recycler of our garbage. He said these things with a sly grin, knowing they would confound me as I molded them until, until our next meeting. We were in the foothills by early afternoon. He directed me to stop on a stony shoulder of the road. We got out and walked. He brought the paper bag with him. I brought the pail. He pulled from it a floppy blue hat, which he mashed onto his head. The sun that had looked warm and buttery at a distance was blazing hot here. We didn't go far, as walking was a chore for him. We stopped at an outcropping of smooth, pale gray rock. He pulled a small pick from the pail and tapped the rock. This'll do, he said. I held the paper bag while he, pick, while he put pick to rock. The skin on his arms had become dry and flaky, as if his body were preparing itself to rejoin the earth. It took him ten minutes to gouge out a hole that he judged to be right. He asked for the bag. I was shocked at what he took from it. Barney! The skull of the Paleocene rodent. This is home, he said. 
He said he was sorry he did not have the energy to return Barney to his original stratum in South Dakota. He laid Barney in the hole, then took from his pocket a scrap of paper. He crumpled the scrap and stuffed it into the hole with the skull. Then he pulled a jug of water, a small bag of patching cement, a trowel, and a plastic tray from the tar pail. He mixed the cement and troweled over the hole. From a distance, you wouldn't know the rock had been altered. Heading back to the pickup, I asked him what was written on the paper. A word, he said. The way he said it told me I'd get no answer to the next question. We rode east down out of the mountains and were home before sundown. When I returned next time, someone else was living in Archie's house. The shed out back was gone, and so was Senor Seguaro. And a new elementary school now occupies Stargirl's enchanted place. More than stars. Since graduating, our class has had a reunion every five years, but I haven't yet gone. I stay in touch with Kevin. He never left Micah, has a family there now. Like me, he did not wind up in television, but he does make good use of his gift of gab. He's an insurance salesman. Kevin says when the class gathers for reunions at the Micah Country Club, there is much talk of Stargirl and curiosity as to her whereabouts. He says the most common question these days is, were you on the bunny hop? At the last reunion, several classmates for a lark lined up, hands to waists, and hopped around the putting green for a few minutes but it wasn't the same. No one is quite sure what happened to Wayne Parr, except that he and Hillary broke up shortly after graduation. The last anyone heard, he spoke of joining the Coast Guard. The high school has a new club called the Sunflowers. To join, you have to sign an agreement promising to do one nice thing per day for someone other than myself. Today's Electron marching band is probably the only one in Arizona with a ukulele. On the basketball court, the Electrons have never come close to the success they enjoyed when I was a junior. But something from that season has resurfaced in recent years that baffles fans from other schools. At every game, when the opposing team scores its first basket, a small group of Electrons fans jumps to its feet and cheers. Each time I visit Mika, I drive past her old house on Palo Verde. On the most recent visit, I saw a red-haired young man across the street fixing water skis to the roof of a yellow Volkswagen Beetle. It must have been Peter Sinkowitz. I wondered if he was as possessive of his Beetle as he had been of the Banana Roadster. I wondered if he was old enough to love his scrapbook. As for me, I throw myself into my work and keep an eye peeled for silver lunch trucks, and I remember. I sometimes walk in the rain without an umbrella. When I see change on the sidewalk, I leave it there. If no one's looking, I drop a quarter. I feel guilty when I buy a card from Hallmark. I listen for mockingbirds. I read the newspapers. I read them from all over. I skip the front pages and headlines and go to the pages and back. I read the community sections and the fillers. I see little acts of kindness happening from Maine to California. I read of a man in Kansas City who stands at a busy intersection every morning and waves at the people driving to work. I read of a little girl in Oregon who sells lemonade in front of her house for five cents a cup and offers a free back scratch to every customer. When I read about things like these, I wonder, is she there? I wonder what she calls herself now. I wonder if she's lost her freckles. 
I wonder if I'll ever get another chance. I wonder, but I don't despair. Though I have no family of my own, I do not feel alone. I know that I am being watched. The echo of her laughter is the second sunrise I awaken to each day, and at night, I feel it is more than stars looking down on me. Last month, one day before my birthday, I received a gift-wrapped package in the mail. It was a porcupine necktie.